0: Good to be with you. Good to see you here this morning. Let's pray. Father, we pray this morning that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So there's a book by Tim Keller called The Prodigal God that really challenged my thinking with regard to this particular uh, parable. And it also, as I read it, reminded me of Carlos Gildemeister, who's my good friend, been my good friend for many years. And it reminded me of the difference uh, in the way that we, two came to Christ. You know, in this parable that we typically call the prodigal son, of course, there are two sons, actually, here. And uh, Carlos had this sort of a younger son, prodigal-type experience. He came to faith later in his teen years. And I know that many of you also have a similar-type story where you came to know Jesus later in life and because of that, you kind of have a clear sense of the contrast of what your life was like before you met Jesus and what it was like afterward. And, and in some ways, I kind of envy that understanding because I had the other kind of experience, more like that of the elder son. My mom tells me that I gave my life to Jesus as a young child between, you know, like four or five years old and I'm sure that the life of crime that I gave up at that point, you know. I'm sure it was significant. I just, I just don't remember it. Uh, so I grew up going to church and, you know, always knowing what I should be doing and, and kind of living with that awareness of God's love and the understanding that uh, Jesus' sacrifice made possible my relationship with God. Now, Soren Kierkegaard, the, the philosopher, said that if you live in a place where being a Christian is normal, you know, as in everybody's doing it, Uh, The first thing that you have to do in order to help someone actually become a follower of Jesus is to first help them to lose their Christianity, right? The trappings, things that aren't really, you know, separating the trappings of Christianity from the reality of following Jesus. You know, in his time, you could ask someone if they were Christian, and they would say, of course I am. I I was born here. You know, I'm I'm Danish. I go to the state church. I even sing in the choir, but I think we know, right, that simply being born in a Christian place, uh, even attending Houghton Wesleyan Church every week or singing in the choir, th- those are not the things that make us followers of Jesus. And so, in the first three verses of this passage that, that Jamie just read, Jesus is telling these parables, and he says, and it says there, the tax collectors and sinners had gathered to hear Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes, the religious leaders, they complained about that. You know, they said, this man welcomes sinners and he even eats with them. And so Jesus responds by telling these three parables. So picture the scene, right? There are two groups of people here in front of Jesus on this bright, dusty, hot, first-century Palestine day. And they exist at two ends of the moral spectrum. There are people in one group. Who know that they are far from God? Right? These are addicts, prostitutes, criminals, politicians, and uh, and on the other end of that spectrum, uh, there are those who have grown up in church. They've gone to the best schools. They're pastors and priests. They're professors of religion. They've never had so much as a detention or a parking ticket or any other blemish on their personal moral record. These are the people who know they are doing what they're supposed to do. So as sort of an aside here, let's do a little thought experiment in your own head. You don't have to answer out loud, okay? But if if we put us on a scale of 1 to ten, one being sort of the worst possible sinner you can think of and 10 being the most perfect human being ever, uh, where would you put yourself? Don't answer out loud. And certainly don't tell your spouse where you think they are on the spectrum. But just, you know, for your own, just an experiment. Where would you put yourself? So anyway, these two groups of people are there. And it's interesting and I think it's important to remember that it's the complaint from the Pharisees that prompt these stories from Jesus. And in the first two parables, Jesus emphasizes God's joy when a lost one is found. The shepherd searches for the lost sheep, and the woman searches for the lost coin, and they show that God is in the business of pursuing the lost and celebrating their return. But it's in this third parable, the parable of the lost son, that the story takes an unexpected twist. And this parable is a drama in two acts, and the first act is the well-known prodigal son. The younger son comes to his dad one day and says, in effect, Dad... I am tired of waiting for you to die so I can get your money. Give me what's mine. I am out of here. It would be hard to think of a more insulting or demeaning or arrogant or painful thing that a young man could say and do to his father. And more surprisingly is the father's response. You know, instead of like getting a big stick and beating him until he had sense, or even just simply writing him out of the will, the father complies. He does it. At great cost to himself, he gives the younger man what he asks for. In this little book by uh, Frederick Beekner called Telling the Truth, he describes the scene. What happens next really well. I'm going to read it to you. The prodigal son goes off with his inheritance and blows the whole pile on liquor and sex and fancy clothes until finally he doesn't have two cents left to rub together and has to go to work or starve to death. He gets a job on a pig farm and keeps it long enough to observe that the pigs are getting a better deal than he is. And then he decides to go home. There's nothing edifying about his decision. There's no indication that he realizes he's made a mule of himself and broken his old man's heart. There's no indication that he thinks of his old man as anything more than a meal ticket. There's no sign that he's sorry for what he's done or that he's resolved to make amends somehow and do better next time. He decides to go home for the simple reason that he knows he always got three squares a day at home. And for a man who is in danger of starving to death, that is reason enough. So he sets out on the return trip, and on the way, rehearses the speech that he hopes will soften the old man's heart so that at least he won't slam the door in his face. Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. That will hit him where he lives, if anything will, the boy thinks, and he goes over it again. Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Trying to get the inflection right and the gestures right. Just about the time he thinks he has it down, the old man spots him coming around the corner below the tennis courts and starts sprinting down the drive like a maniac. Before the boy has time to get so much as the first word out, the old man throws his arms around him and all but knocks him off his feet with the tears and the whiskers and the incredulous laughter of his welcome. The boy is back. That's all that matters. Who cares why he's back? And the old man doesn't do what any other father under heaven would have been inclined to do. He doesn't say he hopes he's learned his lesson, or I told you so. He doesn't say he hopes he's finally ready to settle down for a while and will find some way to make it up to his mother. He just says, bring him something to eat for God's sake. Bring him some warm clothes to put on. And when the boy finally manages to slip his prepared remarks in edgewise, the old man doesn't even hear them. He's in such a state. All he can say is the boy was dead and is alive again. The boy was lost and is found again. And then, at the end of the scene, what Jesus as teller of the parable says is, they began to make merry. Merry of all things. They turn on the stereo. They break out the best scotch, which is not Wesleyan, by the way they roll back the living room carpet, and they ring up the neighbors. Just like in the other two parables, the father throws a party. The younger son has rejected him and humiliated him, left home and wasted half of the family fortune, all in an empty search for himself. And even as he returns, his motives for coming home might be more about survival than they are about being sorry. The father, however, doesn't seem to care one bit about motives, money, his own dignity, or the offense that was given to him. He says, it's time to celebrate. This son of mine was dead and he's alive. He was lost and he's found. And so the party begins. This is a fantastic picture of unconditional love, of redemption, grace. God the father welcomes home the lost sinner into his kingdom. And which of us hasn't pictured ourselves in in that prodigal role at some point in our lives. And I think God's grace towards sinners is the point of the parable, except for one thing. This is not a message to the sinners that are sitting there in front of Jesus that day. This series of parables is aimed directly at the religious leaders. These are the elder brother types. And so let's go on to act two, the elder brother. When the prodigal returns home, the elder brother is exactly where he's supposed to be. He's out in the field, on the tractor, doing the work of the Father. He's driving along, and he suddenly becomes aware of a sound that's been intruding on his consciousness for like the last hour or so. So he stops the tractor, and he opens that little door that keeps the AC in, and he sticks his head out and listens, and he hears it. There's music. He's like, I hear music. What is that? So he gets off the tractor and he starts wandering over to the rise which looks over at the farmhouse there and he he gets to the top and he looks down and sure enough, there's clearly a party going on. There's music and all the lights in the house are on and people are coming and going. The barbecue grill has been fired up. Something big's happening. So he walks a little closer and he grabs one of the hired hands walking by and he says, hey, what's going on? And the guy says to him, your brother has come home. The one we thought was dead, he's back. He's back. And your father's throwing a huge party. Everybody's been invited. You gotta come. Well, verse 28 says the older brother is instantly angry, white hot anger, and he wouldn't go in. He refuses, he remains on the outside. And as listeners, as hearers in this parable, we say, wait a minute, what just happened here? Right? The younger brother who is rebellious, who is admittedly sinful, who has dubious motives. He's part of the kingdom. He's in the party. The elder brother who has never disobeyed, who has, in his own words, slaved for the father, he's out. What is going on? Tim Keller says, nearly everyone defines sin as breaking a list of rules. Jesus, though, shows us that a man who has violated virtually nothing on the list of moral misbehaviors can be every bit as spiritually lost As the most immoral person. The elder son is excluded from the father's party, from the kingdom, and he excludes himself. And why does he do it? What's his reason for not going in? Verse 29 says All these years I've been slaving for you, and I have never disobeyed your orders. It's his perfect moral record, his accomplishments. These are the things that stand between him and God. His words are very telling. The father calls him son and he calls himself slave. He's rejecting relationship with the father in favor of his list of accomplishments. And so it turns out that the two sons are not all that different after all. The younger son wants the stuff or the blessings that the father can give him, and so he asks for it. The elder son wants the blessings the father can give him, and so he works for it. Both want the blessings of the Father, but neither seems to care very much about the Father himself. Now again, I I imagine this scene, and Jesus is standing in front of the sinners, right in this dusty square described in the first part of the chapter, the morally bankrupt are here. And it's interesting, the last verse in chapter 14, Jesus ends the parables that he's telling in that chapter by saying, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And verse 1 of chapter 15 says, The tax collectors and sinners were all around to hear him. They're in. And so Jesus is standing there looking at this group of people and they're looking up at him, drinking in his words because they know, like Peter, where else can we go? Jesus has the words of life. And off to the side, standing under the shade of a building, right close enough so they can hear what's being said, but not so close that they're going to be associated with anybody in that crowd is where the leaders are. And they're muttering and they're complaining and they're refusing to be in. And Jesus hears them and so he launches into these three parables. And he talks about the shepherd who loses the sheep and pursues it and finds it and celebrates its return. And he talks about the woman who loses the coin and she hunts for it, pursues it and finds it and celebrates its return. And I imagine as Jesus is telling those stories, he's slowly turning towards those religious leaders, the Pharisees, and then he begins the story of the lost son. And which is the son that's lost? It's not the younger son. He's in. He's in the kingdom. He's in the party. The shepherd pursues the lost sheep. The woman pursues the lost coin. And the father, flying in the face of in dignity and honor, goes out into the field, in verse 28, and pursues the elder brother. And I imagine Jesus telling that story, now standing with his hand extended to those Pharisees and saying, come into the kingdom. Let go of your pride. Let go of your faith in your your heritage. Let go of this life of joyless duty and arrogant sort of moral drudgery and embrace relationship with your father. I know we are less inclined to see ourselves in the elder brother type, But if we're able to be honest, his footprint can sometimes be seen in our lives. And I think there are two main ways that 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 shows up. The first is in judgment and condemnation. The elder brother shows up in us when we see very clearly the sins of others. You know, he pointed out to his dad, this son of yours who spent your money on prostitutes. We see other sins and are quick to note our own, you know, pretty good record in comparison. In time, we even begin to question whether or not that person should be with us. You know, we just we just read uh, we just prayed together the Lord's prayer when it says, "Forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors." That word "as" doesn't mean while we're doing that; it means in the same way, to the same degree that we forgive our debtors. The elder brother's inability to forgive produced in himself the inability to be forgiven himself. When we sit in judgment on others, we exclude ourselves from the love of the Father. But when we relinquish our need to sit in judgment, we free ourselves from that weight and can fully embrace the forgiveness that God the Father offers to us through Jesus. The second thing is anger and resentment. You know, the The elder son says, all these years I have slaved for you and never once disobeyed your orders. This idea is also connected to our sense of fairness and justice and achievement. You know, uh, my father, when my father passed away, it was after years long and painful battle with, with illness. And watching him go through that was difficult. It was hard. And there were times when I was angry with God and I remember questioning the fairness of it. And telling God about my father's long record of serving him. But you see the implications there, right? All these years I've slaved for you. The elder brother's idea that he should work his way into the father's party forced him in the end to be stuck outside. He said, that's not fair. Your grace is not fair. And so despite the father's pleas for him to set aside his self-righteousness and to be welcomed... To be loved, he refused. And at the end of the passage, the story is left open-ended. We don't know what happened to him. We don't know if he ever comes in. C.S. Lewis said, In the end, there will be two kinds of people. Those who say to God, your will be done. And there will be those to whom God says, your will be done. The younger brother is a beautiful picture of redemption. And human beings are designed for relationship with God And rejecting that design results only in empty brokenness, isolation, and pain. God's unconditional love leaps off the page in the first act of this parable. And if you are far from God, your Heavenly Father is waiting for you with open arms. For the elder brother among us and in us, God is calling you and I to give up our need to sit in judgment on people around us, to stop trying to force God to love us by doing good things, He wants us to let go of our perfect moral record and our pinpoint theological accuracy, all of which have the potential to simply become attempts to manipulate God for our own benefit. Instead, our Heavenly Father is calling us to warm, joyful relationship with Him and with each other. He says, Rejoice with me when the lost sheep is found. Celebrate when a sinner comes to repentance. Let's have a party. As in the parable, the Father's hand is extended to you. What will you do? Let's pray. Father, so grateful for your unconditional love for us, wherever we find ourselves. I pray that you would give us the courage to set aside the things that hold us back and to, and to grasp that hand. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.